Hello, and welcome to Geek Critique, the podcast that pairs a compelling theme with one of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. I'm Brittany. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Geek Critique, where we'll be discussing race in Lord of the Rings. And this episode of Geek Critique, for now, we will be changing our name in the new year, because a really long, boring story. If you're subscribed, you don't have to worry about changing the feed or anything. It'll just automatically update the name, but keep an eye out to find out more information as it comes. Yeah, exactly. We just wanted to give you a heads up, but you don't really need to do anything. But on this episode of what is still Geek Critique, we should probably start out with a question for each other. We've previously discussed our own racial identities. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should talk about representation. Is there any representation that is particularly meaningful to you in regards to seeing someone of a particular race in media? Definitely seeing someone who's Hoppe and is playing a Hoppe character mm. is meaningful because that's hardly ever seen. Mm-hmm. And so growing up, I never got to see characters that were like me. Mm. And that's unacceptable. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, the first time I really remember it was Big Hero 6. And Mm. I was so excited because they're not only just Hoppe, but they're half Japanese Mm. and half white, which is exactly my mix. So that was just so exciting. And, yeah, I shouldn't have to wait until I'm in my 20s to, to experience that. So that is a big reason that it's representation is important i mean there's tons of reasons but Mm. um yeah i can't imagine what it would have been like to grow up as a kid with that Mm. and that you get to see superheroes who look like you and you know have have an actual character identity that is similar to yours uh in general i i get excited about asian representation in in the media because even though they make up the largest population in the world. Mm-hmm. In American media, they are still very, very few and far between, unfortunately. Yeah, they're just generally not given leading parts. Mm-hmm. In, and so it, it's always exciting to me when, when they are. Yeah. What about you? I think the first time I really personally connected with a character or with a representation was also with an animated Disney film, uh, (laughs) was with Coco. Mm. Because while I am more culturally white than I am Mexican, my grandmother was basically another parent for me growing up. I spent a lot of time at her house. She took care of me quite a bit. And so that is also an important part of kind of my identity and culture that way and the relationship between the main character and Coco and, and his grandmother in that movie just like it touched me and affected me in a way that was really powerful because I really saw my own relationship with my grandmother there because it was a movie about a Mexican family and I'd never really felt that before that was definitely powerful and is why I will still <laughs> sob when I watch that movie like you're trying not to do right now exactly (laughs) (laughs) that's funny how two disney movies did this for us even though disney can definitely be problematic when it comes to racial representation (sighs) absolutely and i think when they were making coco didn't they want to trademark 
the name Day of the Dead. Oh my god. So, Wait, yeah. you <laughs> I did not hear about that. <laughs> or that might have been DreamWorks when they were making a, a, another movie. But yeah, one of the companies was clearly doing that that kind of stuff. So, yeah, absolutely not something that I... Like I, the Kardashian, uh, Kim Kardashian trying to trademark kimono. Yeah, exactly. Oh my god, just stop. <laughs> okay, we better stop before we go into the rant mode. <laughs> maybe we should focus on to Lord of the Rings, because there may be some rants there too. <laughs> True. <laughs> so today we have a quote from The Two Towers, the chapter of Herbs and Stewed Rabbit. And in this quote, this is kind of some of Sam's inner monologue as he is witnessing a battle between the forces of Gondor and of Herod. He wondered what the man's name was, and where he came from, and if he was really evil at heart, or what lies or threats had led him on the long march from his home, and if he would not really rather have stayed there in peace. So, the movie stole this from Sam and Mm -hmm. gave it to... Faramir. Faramir, which I guess they needed to because they butchered Faramir's character in other ways. Because they, need... they took away his thoughtfulness. Exactly. <laughs> so they needed to give him some of Sam's thoughtfulness <laughs> to kind of balance the sheet. But yes, this is Best Boy Sam's quote. And I think this is the best instance in Lord of the Rings in how to tackle issues of race as we understand it in the actual world, the ways that we should be humanizing people of other races and cultures. Yeah, approaching people as people with their own personality and desires and motivations instead of only through assumptions. Like, obviously, there are racial aspects there, Mm -hmm. but in general, in Lord of the Rings, it seems like they're approaching people through the stereotyped races and the attributes that are supposed to go with those races rather than an individual person who is also a part of the hobbit community or the elf community or whatnot absolutely and and that's one of the things i love about this quote as well is is sam is wondering about this person whether they are actually evil it's showing that sam is coming from a biased perspective from Mm -hmm. a stereotyping and prejudiced perspective which is socialized into people you know white americans particularly but definitely white people around the world are socialized to think about other races in dehumanizing and othering ways and that is something that sam is also grappling with and he has to question it but he does question it and i think that's a realistic representation of uh unfortunately some of the work that many people, white and other races, need to do to combat their own socialized racism. Yeah, definitely. Well, why don't we get into our analysis itself? Uh, Would you like to bring up your character? Okay, so I wanted to talk about Gimli. I love Gimli. (laughs) So, obviously, Gimli is a dwarf. Mm -hmm. And some things are, are made to be humorous. You know, like never toss a dwarf and I always growing up was like oh that's so ridiculous and (laughs) he's the one who caused them to almost die in Moria and Mm. blah 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 but I was like you know maybe there's an actual cultural reason Mm. for that 
and it should be others' responsibility to be sensitive to that mm. instead of being like, oh, well, this person should be fine with it because the rest are. Right. Like, the hobbits are fine with it, so Gimli should be fine with it, too. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting aspect. But then another thing that's kind of, you know, used as a joke sometimes would be, like, never trust an elf. Mm-hmm. And that obviously is where it's getting into the racism <laughs> part of it and Gimli does have that you can just feel so much animosity at the beginning of the series between him and elves I mean like lost specifically but elves in general to the point where he was trying to refuse to be blindfolded in Lothlorien and it's like yeah that was totally wrong for them to single him out like Mm -hmm. why is it all the the men and the hobbits can go without being blindfolded but not him. So obviously there was racism and maybe it was good that he stood up for that mm. and was like, no, you can't single me out in this way. And I do really appreciate that the rest of the fellowship was like a fellowship. Mm. They decided, okay, even if it's going to put us all in a vulnerable position, we're going to do this rather than force Gimli to do something or leave him behind or whatever it would be. Yeah, that seems more like good allyship, right? Acting in solidarity with whatever privilege they have, saying that they will not just expect him to conform and to take a marginalization, but instead to, at the very least, be marginalized alongside him. Yeah, and and I can see where, you know, people would make the argument, well, it's like, well, it wasn't practical, right? But mm-hmm. that, that wasn't the point. And, mm-hmm. and so I'm glad that they did it this way. Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting moment to look through this lens. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing is that we don't see the same type of animosity between the elves and the dwarves mm-hmm. in The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. So that leads me to questions of, you know, was the loss of Moria and, like, the Arkenstone and these different losses that the dwarves underwent did those contribute to a loss of a sense of identity among the dwarves and then that led to kind of drawing stronger lines and like establishing more barriers Mm. at least in the book of the hobbit because in the movie the hobbit or the movies they i feel like they because they have that so much in lord of the rings particularly in the movies they really bring it into The Hobbit in ways that there weren't in the book, right? We're, we're re- we are rereading The Hobbit together right now, and I was looking for Thorin to try to avoid Rivendell because that's what happened in the movies, right? Gandalf keeps saying we should go to Rivendell, and Thorin's like, no, we're not going to go with the elves because there's trying to show this animosity between dwarves and elves. But in the book, it's just like, oh, hey, they made it there, and they're super happy there, and mm-hmm. they stay there for like two weeks, and they love it, you know? There's, it's completely different. Mm-hmm. And I think that as we come to the Battle of Five Armies, we're, we're going to see a little bit more about kind of the treaties in the past and, and how those have suffered over time because of, of breakages through political machinations and things like that. But they're definitely, in the Hobbit movies, I think they instill a lot more of this idea of dwarf the elf animosity through like a racial lens that isn't really there in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. An interesting thing, so to, to close our little 
conversation about Gimli, mm-hmm. even though he shows so much racial animosity, he really breaks down a lot of those barriers and prejudices mm. throughout the the trilogy because you know starting with galadriel and becoming best friends with legolas like to the point where they just go around traveling together like mm-hmm. for the rest of their lives or whatnot and this person that he at first was grumbling against all the time became really really close friends with totally yeah there's a part of me who who worries about the the problematic aspect of Gimli's able to like elves that are beautiful or I mean aren't all elves beautiful that's though? true but Gladwell's yeah. the beautifulest yeah, of not the beautiful that Gimli doesn't have some problematic <laughs> aspects when it comes yeah. to gender in that regard <laughs> and then he likes Legolas, at least in part because they're both good at killing orcs. So, some problematic aspects. But, yes, that, that friendship, I think, gains the legendary status even within Middle-earth because of the transformation of their relationship. It's just so nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I like that even in, in The Hobbit, you got a little bit, I mean, not with, with them specifically, but the dwarf and elf relationship going on that that you got to see a little bit more of the breakdown of those barriers as well. Totally. Although, obviously, there should be the critique that some of these racial things actually need to be dealt with Mm. (laughs) rather than just like, oh, but we bonded over battle. Look, we can still be friends. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, why don't we move on to your plot? Okay, yeah, speaking of things that need to be dealt with in Lord of the Rings, (laughs) I wanted to talk about the way that non-white humans are treated in Tolkien's Legendarium. Okay. Uh, Specifically the Haradrim, those from Harad, who just generally are exotified and othered both in the book and in the movies, in the way they're represented, Mm -hmm. right? They are certainly of different color, they have different kinds of dress, different kinds of speech, and they are unambiguously unnamed soldiers who are killed en masse. Mm -hmm. And I think the book does a better job with it, but still not a great job. Because as I was kind of looking into this, and started learning a little bit more about them in the wider Legendarium outside of Lord of the Rings. Reading more about kind of what Tolkien wrote about in his letters and things like that, it's just like, it's such an example, I think, of the history of European, yeah, of Eurocentric ways of looking at the world. First off, Harad just means south. And it's supposed to of course it does. essentially be Africa. But there's near Harad and far Harad, which means northern Africa, near Harad, because it's nearer to the white folks. (laughs) (laughs) And far Harad is farther away from them in the same way that we have the far east and the middle east, right? Mm -hmm. In how they talked about Asia. And Harad itself is a Gondorian word. That's not what they would call it. Not what they would call themselves. Exactly. The only Haradian word... And that's not even a real thing because that's not a real group of people. But the only word that we know that is spoken by people from Harad is Mumakil, which is their name for the Oliphants, basically. Mm. 
that's it. We don't know what they call themselves. They don't know what they call their nation. We don't know anything else because we never hear them actually say anything. I mean, why would the white men of the West care? Exactly. Right? And, and I think that it's just such a good example of kind of the problematized way that we see and we have seen race and other people in our history. Because how many people know of the different countries and states and peoples of Africa? We can name all what, sorts of... that's not of... one country? Exactly, right? Like, that's the running joke. And similarly, Harad, Harad is, is right? just one group of people. And, and they even say that it might it, it's probably made up of different communities and cultures and languages, but they're never described. They're never given distinction, unlike there's all these different white folks in Middle Earth, right? There's the Arnorians, the Numenorians, the Eorians. There's all these folks who all have their own languages and all these other kinds of things. And Tolkien just thought that that was all that mattered. And it's almost like he thinks white people are more important. <laughs> almost like it, right? And yes, like he is giving the, what, what he tried to make as like the mythology of the UK, essentially in Europe. So it makes sense that, that that would be who he features, but as he's building up this huge world and talking about these things that describe the way the world exists, and he uses these peoples within his narratives, I think it's so telling that he does not just flesh out a little bit more these different communities. Yeah. Well, and, and a similar thing is done with uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, mm. right? And it's just like, if you just want to write about white people, then just write, write about white people. Why do you need to make the villains people of color? Exactly. I mean, obviously, don't just write about white people. But if you can't do it responsibly, then, like, don't write about people of color, you know? Yeah, yeah you can say it's, it's of the time for C.S. Lewis or for Tolkien, but... Peter Jackson made these films less than 20 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Like, again, it, it's it's telling of not only our history, but of our, our the way that we as a society, we can talk about Europe and know all about what's going on in the, in the EU between Spain and Italy and Germany and France and the UK. But we don't know what's, you know, going on in Sudan versus South Sudan or Nigeria or Ethiopia or all these other countries that have their own interesting and important news happening but it's all just enveloped within africa and, I, and I'll, I'll honestly say that that's true for myself because i don't have the same context there i find myself tuning out more because that historical context i don't know it as well but that mm. also shows that i have lived in and continue to be affected by this racist system of how we look at the world mm. Yeah, that's interesting because when I hear about news regarding an African country, I'm usually a little more interested than in some things. Mm. But I wonder if part of that is because when I was in college, I took a course on modern African mm. history. And so every single week we were quizzed on geography and we had to know all the countries, all the capitals, and then obviously went into many of the different modern historical contexts. And I think that's so yeah. important. And and I wish I had more responsibly studied that myself in college. Agreed, but more so I wish that our country would have <laughs> that in primary and secondary education. Yeah, that it was there's no excuse. It was a priority that you didn't have to individually choose to <laughs> right. look into this. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. 
Well, it kind of leads me, because that was one of the points on my next, um, my compelling question, so. Late on me. Where else do you see race being a significant factor in how heroes treat others or are treated? Hmm. Well, I will say one of the other things I was thinking about that actually kind of led me to the horror dream was looking at the Dunlanders, those living in Dunland who fight alongside the Urukai for Saruman against Rohan. And at the end of the Battle of the Hornburg, they are not massacred like the Urukai are because they don't flee into the, the trees, but they then are shown mercy. And in the books, it mentions that they were surprised they got mercy from Rohan because Saruman had convinced them that they would basically all be killed if they were captured. I chose not to use this because I don't think it, it matches up entirely, but it reminded me of the way that in the history of the United States in particular, elites have utilized racial differences to stir conflict between other groups. So here in America, for example, white landowners essentially worked to disenfranchise and marginalize people of color to create a hierarchy between those poor people of color and poor white people that would keep them from working together against white elites and ensures that the many do not ever get cozy enough with each other that they can organize against them. I wonder what our society would look like if that plan had worked. <laughs> and and so Saruman's like attempt there to to foment these kinds of disagreements for me was an interesting element of that. I don't know if that answers it, but what were you thinking? <laughs> well, so I was thinking about the orcs. Uh-huh. And how they are so often seen as just this monolithic evil species that we can kill as many of them as we want. And mm-hmm. as, as we've talked about in the past, we can play a game keeping score of how many of them we kill. Mm-hmm. But I remember my last read through of the books when Sam and Frodo are in Mordor, you get to hear some of the conversations of the orcs. And it was just striking to me because... You know, they had hopes and desires and complaints and and that sort of personhood is just not really acknowledged by any of the characters. Hmm. Again, maybe they're not so different than any of the other races in Middle-earth. They're just on this other side of the war. Historically humans have always villainized those on the other side of a war and but that's the point you have to dehumanize in order to kill them and and it be morally okay for you yeah yeah that's also making me think about something i i I wish we'd covered in our violence episode luckily we have this topic (laughs) because we do see them outside of it. We do see, as you're mentioning, some of their kind of hopes and dreams and their their personhood. But we also only see them in the context of being soldiers. And What are they like just at home? Yeah. The military itself, in some ways, takes away the individual personhood of its soldiers, mm-hmm. right? It is meant to turn them into tools of war, essentially. So we already see them dehumanized in a way. They're playing a role that is dehumanizing yeah what would they look like outside of that role very Mm -hmm. interesting do they have their own celebrations and 
gardens, you know, everything. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. The only other point that I was thinking about is Bilbo. Mm -hmm. Because as he's traveling to all of these places he's never been before, Mm -hmm. he comes across so many people who just don't know what he is. Mm -hmm. They're like, what are you? You're too small to be this. You know, they compare him to other things because they don't know what a hobbit is. Mm Mm-hmm. And also because of that, underestimate him. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I can't imagine how frustrating it would be just to have people be like, wait, what are you? And that just be completely okay. <laughs> and be like, well, you know, I'm a hobbit and this mm-hmm. is where I'm from and not that many people know us. And yeah, I think the ignorance about hobbits that the rest of the world has and the fact that some people only really know what hobbits are later because Bilbo went. Yeah, and such a, an important mirror to so many people of color's experiences in society. Right. Uh, it just reminds me of, like, Tom Haverford in Parks and Recreation, <laughs> God, right? Like, yeah. where are your parents from? And he's like, South Carolina or wherever it was, mm-hmm. right? Like, he is othered just through his, the way that he looks. Yeah, good point. Yeah, well, what about you? What's your compelling question? I was wondering... How appropriate or effective you think that the metaphor of different races in Lord of the Rings are, meaning men, elves, dwarves, etc., for race within our society? Hmm. I mean, I think it. I think it can spark interesting conversations. Like mm-hmm. hopefully this one has been. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I think. In certain ways, at least how it is portrayed in, how different races are portrayed in the books, it's not quite appropriate because we're not always given distinct power imbalances Mm. that coincide with the different races. It's an imperfect analogy when we don't see distinct differences between how much access to food they have how much access to education to any of these things like hobbits are a small group of people but bilbo certainly has a lot of wealth and as Mm -hmm. we've talked about before like what do they even do vocationally right we see some impoverished humans we see displaced dwarves but we definitely don't see any impoverished elves Mm -hmm. so i think they're interesting questions but as it stands it 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 is not a perfect or necessarily appropriate way to understand it from what i'm thinking right now what do you think yeah i'm i'm basically on the same page where i think that it's it's interesting to kind of conceptualize but it should come with you know an asterisk that recognizes that this is something that is in many crucial ways very removed from the way that race works in our society And I think that's the other important aspect of of how it doesn't translate. The fact that they never show any half of one, half of another. Any hoppa hobbits? Exactly. (laughs) Implies at least that they are biologically separate as well. That's just not true of race in our society. Well, you have human and elf, right? Which That's a good point. But Um, then it's like, oh, you do this and you die. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it's necessarily a nice advertisement for... (laughs) Very true. Yes. Um, Generally, I think that the 
conception of race within our society is proven to not be biological. Mm -hmm. Outside of phenotypical differences, there are no biological differences between the races. And that means that it's different from something that is seeing these things as, if not biologically, at least culturally completely distinct in Middle Earth. Mm -hmm. And that's just not the way that race operates in our world today. And so, yeah, well, I think that there can be some interesting conversations, as you mentioned. Definitely has to have some caveats of where does this metaphor fall flat? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, speaking of falling flat, what's your <laughs> missed opportunity for Lord of the Rings and race? <laughs> well, there are so many things to choose from, and we've already covered some of them. You certainly have. <laughs> but just one that I kind of wanted to draw attention to because my last read through it was something that just kept jumping off the page at me Mm -hmm. tolkien uses the word black for evil things Mm. and it would just make me cringe every time i would read it you know the black tongue the black gates black waters you know all of these things yeah problematic super problematic uh yeah i didn't bring this up when i was talking about harad but the near harad folks are Mm -hmm. brown skinned the far harad folks are black skinned and sometimes described as half trolls oh god (laughs) so bad right and again the farther away you get from white folks the worse you are you know the darker your skin is and as you mentioned the more these characteristics are are connected with evil and negative representations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a short one, but it, it needed to be mentioned. Absolutely. <laughs> so what what is yours? Uh, I am going to bring up the movies to mention that it was a huge missed opportunity that they did not cast people of color in any characters outside of those of Harad. Mm-hmm. Um because that is the kind of way that adaptation should work in the modern age. If we are adapting right. something that's almost 100 years old, we need to modernize it in certain ways. And they clearly knew this in The Hobbit when they added in a completely unknown female elf character because they're like, oh, hey, we don't have a single woman in this story, right? <laughs> right. They needed at least one. <laughs> and so oh dear. in the same way that needed to be modernized, right? Mm-hmm. And even that, it would ch- have to change quite a bit of the story to truly modernize it but bilbo as a hobbit of color female character yeah right and (laughs) that would be great and i think that doing that responsibly i think is important this the way they did with the female character in the hobbit where she as a woman is struggling with kind of expectations put on her within her society so yeah, that's my missed opportunity. I think that that they could have done interesting things and casting people of color as characters in Lord of the Rings. And they could have gone the easy way, which would be to just include them and say, oh, humans are Middle Earth, the dwarves are Middle Earth, the elves are Middle Earth are people of color as well as white folks. Or they could have gone the more responsible way of including it and including at least a nod to how racial disparities have affected those societies even if that's not something that was covered at all in the books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm going to add another one in just because I can. There are plenty. <laughs> I think it's a real missed opportunity in terms of story and in terms of utilizing your narrative to critique problems mm. in society. 
I think it would have been super interesting to have had Saruman want to colonize certain groups mm. because Tolkien's writing from Britain, one of the most historically infamous colonizers in in the world, mm-hmm. right? At the t- obviously at the time these books were written, still colonizing so much of the world. Mm-hmm. So I understand that probably the likelihood of critiquing the society would not have been high, but obviously still should have been done because racism is such a strong part of colonization. Mm-hmm. And I think it would have been fascinating to see that like Sauron just wants world domination. But if Saruman from his position of like, oh, I'm so wise and I can see these different things. Like, I need to bring some of this wisdom to some of these less civilized mm-hmm. peoples. And not all the peoples, because like maybe it's like, oh, well, the elves are fine, but the dwarves and the humans need this. And so trying to take over those areas and, I mean, obviously exploiting them for resources and all sorts of stuff as well, but under the guise of, oh, we're helping better their society and just using some of the rhetoric that was used and, you know, to some degree still is used around the world. That's so interesting because now I'm thinking of maybe that was done in a way that that was at least okay hmm. because doesn't Saruman chastise and demean the people of Rohan for sleeping with their horses or whatever like like saying that they are an uncivilized folk who are because they're rural and all these kinds of things like maybe you could read that as I want this land and so I'm going to say that you are uncivilized so that I can take it and seem like I'm not as evil as I am I can um, feel good about myself. Exactly. Well, and stealing your homes and your food <laughs> and your resources. And resources and labor and all yeah. sorts of other things. So yeah, it, it's not my takeaway, but that is something that I'll have to look for next time I, I go through that section. Mm. So what is your takeaway? Oh, good question. My takeaway is that I need to be more critical of fantasy in general as coming from a Eurocentric point of view. And I can understand it because Tolkien basically laid the foundation for our modern Western concepts of fantasy. And so, so many people have utilized similar elements that Tolkien created for theirs, including in Dungeons & Dragons and in video games and in other books and all sorts of other kinds of things that are made for Western audiences. But that also means that it's come along with the baggage of an inadequate engagement with race as it pertains to the way that it exists in our society. And so I need to not only be cognizant of that and critical of that here with Tolkien, but because he's inspired so much after that. Yeah, my, my takeaway is, is similar because I remember seeing Lord of the Rings for the first time as like a 13-year-old and being like, this is so cool. I love this. <laughs> and... For many years after that, you know, reading the books and then watching the movies all the time. Mm -hmm. And I never critically analyzed it until the past few years Mm -hmm. in this way. And that's not okay. And I I think there can be a common feeling of like, don't judge what I like sort of Mm -hmm. idea out in the world. And and I understand that it it is hard and... I think, though, that 
my takeaway is that like critiquing something doesn't have to mean that you now hate everything about it or that you will no longer watch it. Maybe sometimes it does. Other times, maybe it doesn't. And obviously everybody has to judge that for themselves and depending on how they engage with media, how they engage with their communities and and all sorts of factors. But I think oftentimes people think that if they critically look at the things that they love, they'll love it less. Mm -hmm. And I think you can still love a lot of it. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. It's, It's one of the things I've loved about doing this podcast. You know, not only do I get to hang out with you and talk about geeky stuff, which is great, mm-hmm. but like we get to analyze these things and see where they shine and where they don't. You know, it's it's why we included missed opportunities in the structure of the show, because I think it's important to be critical of even the things that we love. And yes, Lord of the Rings clearly falls short in regards to racial representation, but if you go back and listen to our trust episode or or other episodes we've done about Lord of the Rings, where we've talked about the goodness of Sam and Frodo and the way that family works and all these other kinds of things, there's, I think, important messages and stories within Lord of the Rings as well and things that I love about it, even as it falls short here. And because I love it, I'm going to hold it to a higher standard. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that just because it does not meet that standard, I no longer love it. Found how I feel about you. Yeah. <laughs> That's good, because I never meet that standard. (laughs) Who does? Well, we should probably wrap up this episode. Sounds good. (laughs) So what will we be discussing next week? So next week, we're going back to The Hunger Games. We sure are. And then we are going to be taking a couple weeks off for the holidays, and we'll be back in January. Mm Mm-hmm. So our topic for The Hunger Games is going to be hope. Oh, that's nice. That is nice. Hunger Games so rarely has such <laughs> an optimistic... Maybe we'll be seeing just the dearth of hope in the Hunger Games. No, there's some hope, hopefully. <laughs> well, that'll be next week, and then after that, we'll see you in the new year. Thanks again so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Critique. Make sure to check us out at Geek Critique Pod on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, and on our Patreon page, or go to bit.ly slash geekcritique. We want to thank Kimberly Taylor-Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find her designs at lacelet.com or searching for Lacelet on Facebook or Instagram. We'll see you next week. Until then, geek out! out.